Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Natalie, thank you so much for joining me on the Australian Finance Podcast today. Thanks so much, Kate. Really great to be here to chat with you about something I'm almost obsessed with at the moment. Yeah, it's it's a big topic and it has been hitting the, the AFR, all of the news sites for the last two years, really. I think COVID's really been the, I don't know if you have an opinion, but like the whole Finfluencer world and getting digital advice online, not necessarily from financial advisors. It's just boomed over the last two years. Mm, and in some of the research that I'm doing, some of the people who have started investing um, were definitely motivated by the pandemic, but there were lots of things happening sort of just before the pandemic, at least in Australia, that might have been following, say, the UK in terms of brokerage platforms, um, social media talking about finance, the relationship between finance and well-being. So there's a lot, and it's not just about COVID, and it's not just about people having um, extra money from um, government payments and things like that too. So. Um, lots to talk about, but hopefully you can steer me in a really good direction. You were involved over the last 12 months in a really interesting research study looking at how young people um, up to the age of 30, I think, yeah, were involved in managing their finances online and where they got the information from and just sort of the proliferation of YouTubers and podcasters and influencers on Instagram and TikTok and how that was interacting with the way we manage our finances. So I was wondering if you could provide listeners with a really high level overview of what your research project was all about and maybe any really interesting findings you had after that. Yeah, thanks. Um, I'm a social researcher. So the way that I do research might be through interviews, focus groups, what we call digital ethnography. So basically spending a lot of time online hanging out, collecting insights as to what's happening um, and mapping those and trying to make sense of some of what we might call the social patterns as to what's happening and why people are doing things, how that relates to their identity. Most of my work has been in mental health and wellbeing, particularly how that proliferates online, how people talk about it and their frustrations with health and wellbeing online. And a few years prior, people were starting to talk about financial well-being. So we knew that people were creating businesses to build passive income to sell different kinds of health products. But this idea about finances being the thing that you focus on to build your well-being was really interesting. This happened around the same time that a lot of the digital brokers started to grow in Australia. So we had things like Acorn originally, which then became Raise other platforms started to come onto the market too. And people were starting to share them as opportunities to be able to, as retail investors, um, build your wealth. So with my colleagues, Dr. Ben Hankel, who's in the Institute of Culture and Society at Western Sydney, and Angel Jung, who's in the School of Economics, Finance and Marketing at RMIT, we did some focus groups with young people, 19 to 30, who were either recent new fresh retail investors or maybe had just over five years a little bit longer experience some of them worked or studied in the financial field others were in art school and were self-employed photographers so there's a real range of different people some had grown up in Australia some hadn't some were sort of 
I guess, invited into the world of investing through their parents. The things that we found were that the idea that we can put financial advisors and what we might call the formal financial industry against Finfluencers doesn't make sense because often they overlap. So we'll have people who are talking about buying something or not in a Facebook group um, related to a podcast. Those people might actually be working um, to guide people in their own finances. Another thing that we found was that people had really interesting and often complicated ways to tease out what was risky or not about their own investing. They had sort of ambivalent ideas about whether or not it was gambling. And most said, well, actually, I have long-term goals. I invest in ETFs. I'm interested in ethical investing. These are not things I associate with my mates putting a bet on for the footy and hoping that, you know, whatever gets up. The other thing that we found, and this is interesting to me because I've always been fascinated by how people learn, is that people were learning about investing almost as if it was a hobby. Um, it was almost like the way we were looking at fandoms a few years ago, or for me, looking at young people under 18 in regards to their mental health. It was just woven into their everyday lives. So they'd get up in the morning, they're flicking through Facebook, um, they're flicking through Twitter. Things about investing were just coming through. Um, sometimes they would read them, sometimes they wouldn't. Sometimes I'd put them on an app to read later. They would be talking about it with friends. It was almost like learning to invest was in their everyday life, just in the background. They'd pop a podcast on. Um, they would be learning about things by reading a little bit here and there. And then they also started to talk with other people about it. So it wasn't that they would have this discrete time that was just said, oh, an hour a week, I'm going to do my investing research. Or once every six months, I'll go and visit my financial advice and we'll have everything all sorted, put it into action, and then I'll see you again at tax time. Um, it was this way of doing finance, I guess, that really helped them feel connected with all these other retail investors. And that's something I think is often missing in these big discussions about influencers and social media, that this isn't just, oh, you get this one bit of information from this one person's Instagram account, then you go and put it into action. But there's lots of pieces. It's almost like, um, I'm sure you're the same, having multiple tabs open. Um, and that's, you know, how you might do research. Yeah, and I think that's definitely missing from that discussion, that sense of community. And it's not just going to a financial advisor once or twice a year and not ever getting to talk to anyone else about their finances and seeing how other people are managing it. You don't get all of those things from a financial advisor. Like they do have a really important role, but it doesn't provide everything that I think a lot of young people really need when they're learning about investing. And I think that ties into some of the conversations we we're having previously when I'm you mentioned the study to me originally, and it was about what does it actually mean to be an investor? And you had some really interesting thoughts on how young people are starting to change that conversation and use different tools to help them learn and develop a mindset of su as such. What's interesting through all of this is that People spoke about having an identity as an investor. That doesn't mean it's a badge that they're going to wear. They're not going to buy the T-shirt. I mean, maybe someone will start selling that. Um, but it's a sense of being with other people who get it. Um, it's a sense that, oh, I invest. 
or I'd like to invest. So I'm on these Facebook groups and often they're lurking or they're just watching or they're following things. Um, they'll see something, they'll open up another tab, they'll Google that. They will um, listen to this podcast. They'll have a chat with their one friend who's interested in it and maybe some others are starting to get pulled into it too. So when we talk about this mindset or identity of being an investor, it's something that's really social. It's about being with other people. It might be different to say maybe someone's sexual identity or their religious identity, but it might be what we call a cultural identity. So we can think about this, that if you're interested in Harry Styles, for example, you know, all of the different kinds of social media you're um, engaging with kind of help you get a sense of I'm a Harry Styles fan. Similar to investing and often the research about social media and learning focuses on young people, so children, adolescents, youth, um, and dismisses the way that adults are doing very similar things, but about things that might be seen as serious or adult-like. So things about health, things about getting your mortgage sorted, things about deciding which um, loan um, to take out um, and investing as well. So we have these ideas about who we are and that they're shaped by the other people around us. One thing that I know you and I have talked about a lot is this misperception that investing is really, really difficult or that there's some magic or you need to have studied. You need to be, as some people in the study said, an old white man in a grey suit um, who can be part of this in-group. And I'm not saying that investing is something that everyone should do. That's not my role or place, nor is it something that I think is necessarily great all the time if we're thinking about, you know, the role of investing in the world. But in terms of us breaking down the things that are often barriers, talking about these misperceptions is really important. So instead of listening to me, let me um, share some quotes. So some people were really um, almost frustrated or surprised when they found out that, ah, oh, investing isn't this crazy chaos of the stock market room okay yes in the trading room yes maybe it is for some people but you can go in it can be quite mundane you know you get your bank accounts all sorted you decide what to buy um so this person um is a 28 year old woman who's studying medicine at the time and she um didn't really have a sense of what investing was about so to quote her i didn't really have any advice I think that this is something that's not necessarily advice, but I think I saw a lot of men around me investing. And for some reason, I thought it was really complicated. And then I don't have a degree in finance. I've never been interested in money or economics or anything. And so I just thought I'd never understand it. So this is someone that obviously is highly um, skilled in learning and they're studying medicine, you know, complex ideas. But it's almost like with this popular, um, I don't know, almost like I, I just think of a curtain and it's so you can just see through it and some people can see through it and often that's related to who's in your family what are you studying what are the other people around you do people in your family invest is it something that's part of your um everyday life and if we can kind of tease apart well actually you know most people in Australia are investing through their superannuation oh, that's investing. We do that. We have an assumption that our super will go up, especially if we try and pull all our bits together that from, you know, multiple jobs. That's going to be really important, particularly for things related to accessibility. So another um, quote, this is from another young woman who is 26 and she's self-employed in the music industry. 
and she said that she sort of hesitated to talk about investing with her friends because she went to art school and you know talking about capitalism in her words is not something that you do so she was really interested in um, investing in green energy and really aligning her values with her investments and talking about GameStop she quite liked that this space that used to be so traditionally like old my, old men in suits at Wall Street, um, she liked that you kind of reclaim a little bit of power that you didn't think you had. And being able to have a say, even if it's only $100 worth of a say, where you might want to put your money, it's still capitalism, but you do have a bit of an input, which just mentally makes her feel a bit more, less of a victim of circumstance or something. So for her to be able to slowly talk about investing with a partner, to slowly sort of find out which friends were interested in, helped her tease out some of the tension she had between her feelings about capitalism, um, her desire to live in a better world, to address climate change. That was really important to her. And again, it's that idea that having other people around you or someone you can relate to really helps tease apart those misperceptions about the stock market equities and so on. And investing really is a social experience. I mean, ever since I've started, I've always, uh, I've found people around me and worked in fields where I can just have conversations over a cup of tea about a company or a concept or an idea that I'm learning about. And it's completely normal. And I think that's been really beneficial along my journey. And I think that's so, if we don't have those people in our lives, that's one of the places where like the social platforms and the, the influencers, as the media loves to call them, do play a role in our finance and investing journey. Um, and I, I'd be keen to hear your thoughts and from what you've learned in the study about what gap these influencers do play and in people's investing journeys, what the value is in learning from other experiences rather than just getting told, here's your plan and here's how to action it. and um, and potentially even just like looking at what other people are doing without necessarily copying them, which I think the media seems to think that we're just going to look at one person's portfolio and completely replicate it in our account. Yeah. It's really complicated talking about social trading because we know lots of platforms have those explicit tools that help you with a click of a button copy literally somebody's portfolio. No participant said they did that. Um, They said they often looked for ideas and inspiration, even in the bad tips on some forums that they saw were a little more, um, I don't know if I should swear, but a bit more rubbish. Um, You know, they saw them as, okay, even if it's sort of a bad tip, it might give them a good idea or lead them off in another direction for research. And I didn't grow up with that social community around me to have a cup of tea to talk about money or finances. Um, I just really like doing my tax returns and um, setting up my super. So I've always been on top of it, but not in a way to think about, okay, what might make uh, my financial be- future be a little more secure? Does investing play a role in that? And I think that's, as you're saying, where those influences, where the people on social media talking about investing and finance fit in and I think if we can talk broadly about it because um, I can't I don't know any influencers who are really excited to call themselves a influencer and the other thing is that sometimes it's just Facebook groups we have lots of different people talking and none of those people are the influencers but they're all people that are having this conversation about finance so these gaps that they fill five things One is that they talk about lifestyle. You know, who do you want to be? What do you want to do? 
this is me, this is how I pack my lunch, um, this is me with my job, I don't want to buy a house, I want to do this. Um, you know, I don't know how many financial advisors are going to sit down and talk about that. And it's not that people are going to go, oh, I'm going to buy your exact lunch or I'm going to become a primary school teacher, but it's just seeing how other people arrange their lives, even the percentages of how much you save, how much you put towards um, your food and your groceries. That kind of leads into the second thing, which is relatability. That's central to all of this, seeing other people that you can relate to. And often it's a perception of relatability, that if everyone else in that Facebook group or the comments on Instagram are talking about, say, afterpay and whether it's peak or not, you feel a sense of connection and you can ask questions, you can lurk, that there is some value there. The communication for the third gap is really accessible. It's broken down into small things. There's a great TikToker who will just say, if you save this amount of money per month, starting at this age, on average, where would it be at 8%, take into account inflation, da, 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 da. and that's all it is. It's literally this person making videos about something we could sit there with a calculator and do. Not that I'm going to do that. But people were like, oh, can you please do 32 in this age? Um, and I love that engagement. And it's just this little reminder. And I think what some people said, it's just these little pieces that remind them, oh, yeah, I am interested in this. Or actually, no, I do need to look into this. Or actually, I'm getting a bit bored of investing. I might just leave it for the moment, put it a bit on autopilot, check it diversified, and then move on. Fourth gap is this idea of dialogue. And that was really, really central for people who wanted to see how other people were making decisions. So the types of communication that helped them get a sense of what other people were doing were things like podcasts that didn't tell you do X or Z, but people sort of talking through the pros and cons. The comments of Instagram, Facebook posts, the comments to articles in, you know, news media, that was fascinating for them because they got a sense of what other people were thinking. And we might use that sort of investing language of sentiment about a company, but really it's just to be part of that conversation. This isn't new. People have always had conversations in the coffee shop about investing. When I worked in the city in that area of town, I'd hear it all the time, but I just didn't quite understand it. Whereas here, it's a bit more accessible. And the last point, which is something I've kind of threaded through all of this, is that these influencers provide a way to informally learn without having to kind of step out of your life. You don't have to make an appointment. It's just in the background. Um, it's, again, how you learn about hobbies or how you do interest-led learning, which is about finding spaces that you can connect to, that you can read things. And this was similar even for people who worked in the industry. You know, they would have their newspapers that they would check, their websites that they would check. They might follow particular um, fund managers on Twitter just to get a sense of what's happening. And that was just part of their everyday lives. In some ways, though, those gaps make it really difficult for people who just want to quickly jump in, get a sense of what's happening and go, because you have to invest a bit of time and energy into it. You have to be interested enough to work out, I'm going to follow this person, this person's relatable, this person's not. Um, so in some ways, it does put people who kind of want to get a sense of what's happening at a bit of a disadvantage. For some people in the study, they recommended there are some great books that can kind of give you that basic understanding of how the stock market works in Australia, but then you can move on to other kinds of resources. Um, so yeah, those five things I think are really important and often what's missing. Lifestyle, 
relatability, that accessible communication, that dialogue, and even just lurking the dialogue, even if you don't want to be part of it, um, and opportunities for informal learning. And I think that's so interesting. It's that bringing it into your daily life. And yes, you might interact one day and you might not interact the other day, but it's, it means you're actually getting involved on a regular basis and sort of prioritizing it rather than just that yearly check-in when you might just set and forget and not think about um, your finances or your budget for the rest of the year. And I think we spoke about this before, but it's interesting that it kind of self-regulates. Sometimes you're going to get really bad people spruiking weird products or bad advice on Facebook groups and TikTok and Instagram. But I think a lot of people can call that out or at least see it for what it is. And often the people with larger followings, um, the larger podcasts, the larger Facebook groups, you'll start to see common threads appear or they'll grow because they're sharing good information. And it's not always going to be the best information or the information a financial advisor would have given you, but you do get extremes on either side, but you get a lot of good middle ground information that I think that's one of the things that just does get represented like misrepresented a bit in the media there's actually a lot of good solid like advice on how to budget how to invest in ETFs like most of it isn't insane stock picking um, in really small companies is it to be honest, a lot of it's quite boring information and I think this is something that some participants picked up on there's a point for some of them who had been getting the books, um, had been following different Instagrams um, from people talking about investing that were in the Facebook groups, that were reading Reddit, that after a while you just hear the same stuff again. You know, ETFs is this. Think about inflation. Did you know that if you um, sell your um, shares before 12 months is up, then you will pay more tax. If you wait 12 months, you'll pay less tax. Um, Obviously, that will depend on people's tax situations and I am not in any way shape or form a financial advisor so definitely go and talk to someone about tax but even the bad advice people saw it as inspiration the tricky bit is that you can quickly jump into something I quickly check a reddit um, forum read through that and quickly put something into action and those people might never follow anyone else never go into the discussions never lurk a Facebook group. So another part of this research that'd be great to expand on is what happens with the people that it's the one-timers, the, um, I can't even think of the right word here, but the people that just sort of dabble in and disappear. But then again, how much money they invest into, how do they perceive what they're doing? Um, are they seeing it as this is a quick gamble and then I'll disappear, I'll put this money in ETF, forget about it for five years, not put any more money in, you know, break my phone, not be able to access raise or something like that. So it'd be interesting to kind of tease apart what those people are doing. But for the people that sort of dabble in it, just start following. They're a bit curious. They might download an app. Most people in our study had more than one platform. They didn't necessarily exclude the banks when it came to choosing a platform. They might have platforms that you might say would overlap. So they would all, three different ones would offer US trades um, or one would offer this information or this information. And they really just want to get a sense of, oh, what does this one offer? What does this one offer? How much does it cost here? Are the fees different here? Should I invest on here? So really for those people, it's that sense of even with all the maybe less than helpful information, they're getting a sense of playing with it, seeing what what the results are, experimenting, I guess. 
Based on that, do you think like the the media and the finance industry is really not giving consumers enough credit to actually evaluate this information on their own? Because there's just so much bad press about the influences and that it should be regulated on, they shouldn't be allowed to do X, Y, Z, and they're taking business away from financial advisors. Do you you think some of that's a bit blown out of proportion? It's really difficult because you know, the Royal Commission brought up so many really important things, um, you know, to really regulate what's happening in the advice that's being given out. But at the same time, in some ways, this is a new market. Um, these are a group of people who have only just started investing. We can see that from um, other research. We can see that from the ASX research. These are people who are not going to pay 500 plus to go and see a financial advisor. They've always had a sense of seeing themselves as people who are lifetime learners. Um, that's something that's come through in this sort of neoliberal age where you take responsibility for your well-being, for what happens in your life. Um, as we start to strip away different kinds of welfare supports, people then have to come in and fill that gap themselves. So education is really important. They see themselves jumping between different kinds of careers. Obviously, a lot of this is for people that have those resources. So to say to um, those people, don't look at this, just look at this one website or just go and talk to this one person doesn't make sense because they haven't done that for other ways of learning. They've kind of done their own research. Um, They've gone out, they've talked to different people. They may have made a decision and still gone and asked for 20 different opinions, listened to two podcasts, read six think pieces, looked and analysed a report and then made the decision too. Um, So it's a different way of thinking about learning. And I think that's the missing piece. It's the way that these younger people are learning as part of their everyday lives. You're all pulling apart these pieces, you know, the multiple tabs as a metaphor, but also a literal practice is very different to what might be pushed by people um, promoting very formal approaches to financial learning. So there's that tension there. And it's not saying that we need to get rid of one or you know, financial advisors now need to be making TikToks, although there are financial advisors that do these things. But it's about finding a way that, I guess, these things can interact in an ecosystem that's well supported. So things that I would love to see would be some really simple things, actually. Um, and I don't know if this is my ex-teacher in me speaking, but almost like a checklist. So if you're going to make a trade or you're going to buy something, there's some basic things you might need to know. Okay, if you sell or buy this within 12 months, you know, does this impact your tax? Oh, is this a US equity? You know, what does that mean? Do people know some basic things about diversification? They don't need to know all the pieces. It's just a quick checklist because these are some things that people have said that they've missed. Um, have they thought about their super and where that fits into it? And, of course, someone who um, has a better understanding of financial literacy might have other pieces to it. But I don't think it's about making another general neutral website that doesn't feel relatable, that doesn't tell the stories. It's just a quick checklist. Okay, I'm on top of those things. Or, uh, you know, you've been investing for three years. Here's your checklist, diversification, whatever. Da, 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 da. For anyone listening, don't listen to me what those explicit things are um, because obviously that's what somebody who, you know, works in that space would better understand. But in terms of learning and where you are on that, it's just those little check-ins. It's the same way that we might study in health. Do you understand these things? Great, okay. Two years' time, obviously your understanding will increase. Your experience will have changed. What else can we add to that mix? 
Um, that's a really simple, basic thing, but it's just that check-in. And that would be a great thing for financial services to offer at a reasonable cost that makes sense to people, um, for platforms to add, for websites to add in as well. In some ways, it's curating the information that's out there for a checklist that makes sense for a person who has a particular kind of life. So it may not be age related. It may not be how much money they have in their portfolio. It may be, okay, you're this person, you're self-employed, you don't have kids, you don't want to have kids. Um, you're not really thinking about a mortgage. You're thinking about working around the world. This is what you might need to keep in mind versus, okay, you have a solid job. You're thinking about a mortgage. You're thinking about your kids. You know, those kinds of investing decisions would be quite different. And again, that's why people like hearing about people's lives because those decisions about your money relate to your life in general. So if we could have a checklist for different types of people and different types of journeys, that would be fabulous. Um, anyone can take that idea. <laughs> no, it's a good idea because there is so much information out there, especially now. There's just so many sources you could possibly get information from. And if you're just getting started with your personal finance and investing journey, you often don't know what you don't know and you don't know what you need to know. And so it's not until you fully, you can't just sort of drop into that ecosystem and then jump out again. You need to immerse yourself and then you start to go, oh, they're talking about compound interest. Okay, I want to learn about that. And you slowly sort of dip your fingers in and like get to know all the different areas but yeah checklist for your own life circumstances sounds like a good oh, idea. I'd love checklists for everything I would love a checklist for um you know I guess it's like the health checklists um you see those articles um often in women's magazines you know at 20 what are the things you need to have talked about with your GP at 30 what do you need to talk about at 40 you know to get your hormones checked oh, at 50 go and check the, you know cancer for these things um and it's if I said to someone or oh, what would you have at different stages I'd kind of have an idea about health checkups but in terms of finances but also acknowledging that a lot of people lead lives that are not stable the job market for them is not stable or secure um, we know that casualization is on the rise so the, those kinds of financial situations are very different to people who um, been in families that have always invested that might have family trusts that have gone into um, an industry that's familiar to them and their social um, circle and so on so again it's mapping it out according to what's happening in people's lives less about just how much money is in your portfolio, what age you are. Yeah. And I think the other thing that's been quite beneficial by the rise of influencers and all the other ways you can learn online, um, which I don't know if was there before, is that people are very willing to share the mistakes they make along the way, when they fail, when they lose money, when they got scammed even, which is not always the, the most pleasant thing to talk about online. How have you seen in study anecdotally that learning from failure has played a role in people's journeys? And do you think that's something that we should keep sharing online and keep looking at? Yeah, I was, um, I don't know if I was surprised, but I loved hearing people start to tell us in the focus groups about their losses. You know, to quote one person who was 30, everyone has a loss or two. That's something you learn from. So loss was often um, you didn't make as much money as you thought you would from something that you had bought. 
or actually investing money and really losing a lot of money um, through it. People saw that this idea about getting burnt was really important early on and it's better to do it early. So they said that, you know, maybe 30 seemed to be this golden age where you needed to get serious about your life. And as someone who's well over 30, um, I didn't do that. And okay, but um, yeah, this sense that, you know, if you're 22, getting burnt will help you learn a different technique or strategy. In some ways, social media is supportive that because we have these ideas and what we would call discourses in social research about entrepreneurship, startup, competition, where failure is almost perceived as this important thing for success. Some people even said that they would find someone more relatable or trustworthy on a podcast if they had failed than if they had always been great and made great decisions as a retail investor or for their um, clients as a financial advisor. So it's interesting that that vulnerability or I guess, yeah, making mistakes is something that people see is really valuable. It builds trust, it builds relatability, it builds a sense of authenticity. For people to share those experiences on a forum or in a discussion, to see them as an education in itself um, is fascinating. Um, it's maybe something that we perhaps don't hear a lot about in other kinds of areas like health, People are not really talking about their mistakes in that way and especially not so quickly. So it's not, oh, I lost this amount of money yesterday. I'm going to change this. So I really need to fix up my, or I need to rebalance what my portfolio looks like. This seems different to gambling where talking about loss needs to be seen as, oh, lol, I made a mistake. I was so drunk, I put this bet on. So it kind of fits that event narrative of oh, I got a bit crazy on the weekend. Oops, there goes 500. Um, whereas investing, it's like, oh, I thought I did this, but I didn't do this. I should have checked their reports. I should have done this. There's always another stage of learning. And that was seen as essential for the people in our study, at least. Yeah. And I think it even reading about someone's mistake may get you interested in a completely different area um, that you hadn't thought of before because I, people seem to everything that could possibly be done and made a mistake of someone has done. And I think that's one of the things I've really liked about reading, especially in the financial independence community, people are very open, even if they're anonymous, about mistakes they've made along the way. And I I found that very beneficial, like even individually reading that and going, okay, maybe that strategy didn't quite work for them. If I'm doing this, have I thought about this when I'm making my financial plans and things like that? Even just making sure you've considered all your options when you read other people's stories. Mm, and I think some people say, oh, I've made this decision. Can you give me some feedback on it? Because they are seeking just to sort of check all their boxes, I guess, in regards to that. Talking about all of this, I just think about how much work and you know investment you need to do to invest in some ways, which works for some people that have the time that might have jobs in front of computers um, or that are allowed to listen to a podcast while they're doing something that might be more hands-on. Um, so I think that's the piece to this. As a social researcher, I'm interested in who is this accessible for and who is this inaccessible for? Who does this still exclude? Um, but talking to some people who never thought that they would be investors, 
that had always been interested in, say, social justice or um, environmental ethics, um, trying to find spaces to talk about investing um, and to see both, you know, what's problematic and what's great about it. It's been really fascinating for me, but also kind of starts to tease apart how we can make it more accessible for the people that do want to get involved too, especially through the pandemic where we know people, um, young adults, people under 30, some of them, you know, had to use up all their savings, they had to go eat into their super to be able to pay their daily um, expenses, while other people, some of the people in this study included, had extra money. So, you know, they could come ahead with twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 that they would otherwise not have because um, they would otherwise be going out or getting transport to work or paying for um, living costs too. So it's going to be really interesting to follow this generation of investors and what's happened with people um, through the pandemic um, and how we can kind of support the people who um, whose financial situation is less well resourced in the next years too. Mm, and hopefully there's uh, more research to come from you in this area. There's so much to dive into to help consumers better and to better understand this new new world of investors that are quite different to your, your parents and your grandparents' generation. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I guess those sense of um, finding other people to talk about it are going to help anyone that's starting out and especially for people who feel it's it's like speaking another language or having that curtain down or that they're feeling discomfort about what they're doing finding other people in their social circles whether that be online whether that be in their own communities whether that be at the pub now that we can go back to the pub which is very exciting um to find spaces to talk about it because um when you start to talk about investing, you actually start to talk about, okay, what do I need in my life to live? Okay, I need to sort out my super. Can I get access to those kind of supports um, if I lose my job? Can I um, look after my kids in the way that I want to? Can I have this kind of job? You know, maybe I might want to think about, you know, the environmental impact of investing and how I can invest in a way or not that supports that. Or can I, you know, reshape my super in a way that's going to support that or not? So if I was a um, if I was a financial advisor, I'd be saying talk to lots of people, and that they will also help you find resources that make sense for you, that are accessible, that communicate really well, um, communicate clearly about the kinds of personal challenges you might face as an investor. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of benefit to fully immersing yourself in the ecosystem, using different resources on different platforms, and actually staying there for more than a day or two, so you get a really wide variety of information and you've covered a lot in your research paper that's I would, I would recommend listeners if they want to learn a bit more about other people's perspectives to have a look at and in today's episode but if we can kind of tie everything up in a nice bow and if you had some main takeaways for listeners after after today's conversation yeah I think I'd be paying attention to how you learn which I know in a lot of social research, we see that as something that's a responsibility that's pushed onto us um, given the social context that we're in. But to pay attention to it so that when we're supporting other people to better understand their money, whatever that looks like, if it includes investing or not, um, that we have a bit of empathy for how they learn because we are learning through these multiple taps as a metaphor. And I think that's the key there. And I think maybe I'm really speaking, Kate, to um, 
the people talking about this issue and just focusing on finfluencers, but forgetting this whole ecosystem, like you said, that's out there. Um, so I don't know if that ties it in a bow so well. This is what you get from um, speaking with social researchers that, you know, complicate things. But yeah, paying attention to how we're learning um, and supporting different people to learn through this, what we'd call the social learning way, that there's lots of different pieces to it as well. Yeah, and I think that's like, even if you want to start talking to a friend about money, working out, like, do they prefer podcasts? Do they like Facebook groups? Do they just want to read the entire Money Smart website start to finish and sending them resources that they'll connect with rather than just giving them what you think you like best. Um, just because there's so many people out there and you can connect more with one particular podcast or book than you might with another. And it's about figuring out what works for you and using that as a springboard for your own research journey. And I guess, you know, respecting that um, people like to engage with things that make sense to them that do feel relatable. Um, and yes, that does come with challenges too, when people are selling a course that's going to change your mindset for three grand and teach you the magic of compound interest. Okay, but, you know, when you could just get that from a TikTok or the Money Smart website or just any book. But again, respecting that different people will need different ways to learn about these things that, again, maybe tap more into the misperceptions, that lack of confidence, that curtain that's down, that other sort of how do you speak this language of finance that's not part of the everyday life too. So it sounds weird, but, um, you know, more people talking about these things in different ways that aren't necessarily neutral ways I think will be better supportive for the whole ecosystem, particularly when it comes to accessibility. Absolutely. And Natalie, I'll put your research report in the show notes, but if there's any other resources you wanted to share with our listeners, listeners, did you want to share them now? Um, we're working on some um, research papers, so journal articles from this project um, and thinking up where to next. Um, obviously, people are really concerned about regulation and that is important. Um, but again, I think there's some missing pieces there for us to think about how people are learning or how people are engaging in these spaces. Um, so I'll share um, some other links that are on the APO sites. That's the Analysis and Policy Observatory. Sounds Lots of exciting. academic research on there. Oh, <laughs> do you want to know some people's thoughts about the HILDA study? It's on there. But if you just want to dabble and see what academics are saying about this space and people that work in that world, lots of free resources to have a look at there. Um, it would be really inappropriate for me to share, um, you know, my favourite websites or podcasters or TikTokers um, because I don't have a financial background. So any of these things, again, are really directed towards, you know, what's the social research saying? Um, what can we learn about how people are learning or making sense of this um, social media um, investing world? Wonderful. Well, I think there's been a lot of interesting takeaways for listeners and even just to get you thinking more about how you manage your finances and how you interact with this digital ecosystem. I think there's a lot of interesting reflection points on today's episode. So Natalie, thank you so much for joining me on the Australian Finance Podcast today. Thanks, Kate. And thanks for letting me use the word discourse at least once in there. I appreciate <laughs> you, it. You snuck it in somewhere. I didn't notice. <laughs> thanks, Kate. Wonderful. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast, where our mission is to improve the financial futures of all Australians. 
If you'd like to learn more, create a free account at risk.com.au forward slash account to download free episode workbooks, bonus resources, and take our amazing free personal finance courses. You can also join our online community by following the link in the description. If you enjoyed the show, what we'd love is for you to leave us a snappy review on iTunes. And you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Rask Australia. Kate and I are also on both of those channels. Finally, if you have any feedback, suggestions for episodes or guests to come on the show, or you just have a question for us, shoot us an email at podcast at rask.com.au.